You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. My name is Doug Thorpe, and today we are going to talk about our favorite topic, leadership. Specifically, we're going to lean into the arena talking about leadership in education, higher education, learning of all kinds. But I've got a feeling my guests and I are going to have some fun jousting around about just leadership in general and and the principles and theories behind it. Uh, Speaking of my guest, his name is Dr. Toby Travis. Toby, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. You bet. And tell us where you're calling from. Currently, Fayetteville, North Carolina, where I'm a head of school. Head of school, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit, and then I know we'll get into a little more detail. Just uh, give everybody a flavor of the kind of school and, and the, the span and the uh, grade levels that are involved. Well, currently, I'm superintendent of Village Christian Academy. We've got preschool through 12, about 690 kids total, um, and, uh, you know, college preparatory program uh, here and serving um, families throughout the Fayetteville area. This is also a military town, so we've got a lot of, a lot of military families. Uh, my background, however, has also been in international schools, bilingual schools. Uh, my wife and I lived in Ecuador for about 10 years and served in two different schools there. So, um, you know, uh, uh, my, my background as in school leadership has been uh, exclusively in the private sector, but have uh, done a lot of work and training also for public school educators, uh, did uh, some extensive work with the University of Pennsylvania a couple of years ago with training uh, public school administrators and and and, uh, and supervisors. And so have uh, a lot of um, connection and friendships uh, working in the public sector as well. Uh, but my work as a school administrator has been Uh, committed to the private sector. Yeah. So I'm hearing you've been an educator most of your adult life. Is that true? Is that a fair statement? Actually transitional. I have always had a passion for education. I've always had a a foot in the door, as it were, um, but actually had an entrepreneurial background as a young man. I actually had a show business career for a number of years and produced a show that toured, um, started a, a small business. And uh, so I have, you know, some a business background as well, worked in the nonprofit sector uh, as well, and, uh, and helped uh, develop uh, an organization that ended up having uh, work and reach internationally. So it's kind of a mixed bag, uh, the, but always a touch uh, and passion for education. That was always kind of my, no, I knew if my itinerant work, I was on the road for many years, uh, Doug, so literally uh, globetrotting for about 20 years. And the thought was, mm, if I ever got tired of that, I'd settle down and work you know, in a school setting, which is exactly what I ended up doing. So about the last 15 years, though, have been dedicated to to K-12 schools predominantly, and uh, some of those years in the classroom, but then the majority has been at the admin level. 
at the risk of sounding facetious, I'm going to coin the phrase that is typically held out for our military folks. Thank you for your service. <laughs> uh, and I say that with, a, with an honest degree of passion. I've got uh, children and, and spouses of theirs in my family that are educators. And uh, that is tough duty. And it... Uh, it's an important component, I think, in the fabric of our country and where we might be going as a society. And I say, God love all the teachers and administrators and the things you have to deal with nowadays. Yeah, underappreciated, undercompensated, and yet critical to the very fabric of our communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no doubt about it. Well, I'm going to kind of lean into our, our thought process here today, I, I want to ask first this notion of leadership in education. When did you first start zeroing in on the idea that there's something about educators needing a leadership toolkit on top of everything else they're doing? Yeah, great question. So really, I, I think back to my first formal classroom experience or teacher as a teacher in the classroom and uh, came into that school. And I think I was a bit naive. I just kind of assumed we'd all get along. I mean, it's all about the kids and meet the kids needs. And, and I saw and realized very, very quickly, mm, these relationships aren't necessarily healthy between admin and the faculty. And within a very short amount of time, Doug, I had the opportunity to join the admin. I got tagged fairly early on in my teaching career um, to uh, pursue administration. And, and I'm like, whoa, we've got to start getting really intentional about fixing these relationships. Now, and I had been through um, kind of similar um, work in the corporate setting and had seen how, no, we've got to be intentional and it's, and it's vital that we have high levels of trust between, um, you know, leadership and, and employees. And in this case, uh, school admin and faculty and a, a good friend of mine, uh, David Horsager wrote a bestseller called the, the trust edge. You may be familiar with that book and actually went yeah. number one, I think on wall street journal a number of years ago. And I remember reaching out to Dave saying, hey, my trust expert, you know, what counsel can you give us? And he actually came and spent time on our campus working with our team it was phenomenal. I mean, just uh, one of the best professional development sessions uh, I've ever been a part of. In fact, it's very rare that you have a PD session in a school setting that ends with a standing ovation, you know, and, and he just, well, he's a great speaker and trainer as yeah. well. But that really piqued my interest. And, and actually, Dave was a great help to me then as I was going into my doctoral program just uh, with identifying much of the research that's been done that's out there on leadership. And of course, I was looking for then, well, what does this look like in a school setting? I'd had the opportunity through that friendship to actually sit in a corporate training where, you know, you've got... Um, folks from FedEx and Goodyear and United Health Services. And I was sitting there from Alliance Academy. And, uh, but had, through that wonderful opportunity to see, okay, what, what do corporate leaders do in training and ensuring uh, that there are high levels of trust in their organizations? I'm like, ah, schools need this, schools need this. But schools do have a unique structure they have a unique jargon. Um, and so that's really been kind of my my work and focus uh, for the last uh, umpteen years now has really been, okay, what does trust um, 
research inform us about schools and, and how they, they function better. And if I can kind of jump to it, Doug, I mean, the bottom line of the research and, and all the work comes down to really this one stat. The number one indicator of successful schools is trusted leadership. Number one indicator of successful schools is trusted leadership. And there's boatloads of research behind that. What really gets fascinating, though, is it doesn't seem to matter how we define the term success. That finding still holds true. So if we look, if we define success as student achievement levels, when you look at schools where we have the highest levels of student achievement, what you will also find is a direct correlation to high levels of trusted leadership. If we define success as retention of quality faculty and staff, same thing, direct correlation to high levels of trusted leadership. There were several studies on the on discretionary energy. So basically, where do people volunteer more? Where do they give of themselves above and beyond? Mm, schools where there's high levels of trusted leadership. Innovation, creativity, direct connections to, to leadership. And you've seen it, I'm sure, in the corporate sector as well. These are not unique stats to education, but we do find them uh, holding true in education. So yeah. when yeah. we don't get this right, this is also where we run into all kinds of problems and, and dysfunctionality. And so uh, all that to answer your question, where did I see it? Yeah, right from the get-go in my formal education career. I had been an itinerant trainer. I had been on literally hundreds, if not thousands, of school campuses in the years prior to stepping into the classroom. So I had, had seen it kind of at a distance, but then right up close to my day-to-day -day work, I was seeing it, and then had the opportunity of working with an amazing and wonderful team uh, to see a, a, a really, really significant turnaround when we were intentional about addressing those issues. That whole idea of trust is so big, and and I, too, am a fan and um, um of David's work, the Trust Edge, and he he frequently goes to around the country to um, education teams, uh, either public yep. school districts or the private schools, conferences, continuing education venues, things like that. And in in fact, it was ironic uh, pre um, well, let's see, I guess it was last spring. My daughter, who is a high school math teacher uh, went to one such conference and David was speaking there and she straddled up to, to in line and, and said, uh, my dad's an executive coach, you know, you might know him and drop my name. And he goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And, <laughs> and we, uh, and she was, she was kind of surprised, but David and I, and he's done a lot of work on it as have I, mine's not probably as distributed widely as his is, but uh, I am too a, a, a big fan of talking about that creation of trust in the workplace. And a colleague of mine and I, in fact, the last book I wrote was partnered with my friend, Roger Ferguson. And we, talk about building trust at work and it's it's a model we've used for decades and it was ratified when google did their big study and published their project aristotle they called it came out in 2018 it's hard to believe it's already four years yeah. old yeah. but it was the culmination of their two-year internal study on why some teams perform better than others it it wasn't making logical sense to them why for the high horsepower that they recruit and hire why all teams just didn't perform at, at peak 
and they they dug into it and, and conducted this two-year study and of course the compelling runaway contributing factor to to high performance was high trust and and yeah. they coined the what is now the popular buzzword psychological safety mm-hmm. yes right and put that out there and and yeah. if it existed before they made it famous uh, by yeah. citing it in their study so it is well, and I'm sure you're familiar with Eidelman and the work that they have done for yep. years and years. Their their annual barometer they, they that they put out, and it's and it's huge and it's extensive, and and it's across sectors. I mean, that's that's the thing is this is not a unique application to oh, this is really important for you know the the medical sector. No, it is universal, but the application to the very specific nuts and bolts of what you do with it and how you do this intentionally, uh, it does take nuancing um, to to the industry. And um, and 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 again, this is what I've attempted to add to the conversation is, okay, in a school setting, how do we assess it? How do we intentionally build it? How do we tie this to other research that we find in high, about high-performing schools? And, and we've got some great uh, studies that have come out of like the Marzano group and some others that have shown us very specific skill sets and behaviors. Well, then we need to look at, well, which of those are connected to supporting high levels of trust. And so then when we're assessing a trust level and identifying, okay, that's weak in this certain area. Uh, in my book, you know, I talk about these six components of, of trusted leadership and we assess those components. Well, when a component is low and it needs to be reinforced, what are the specific things we need to be doing? Well, we now know within the educational sector, no, I, I could tell you exactly what you need to be working on that will also have a direct correlation to, again, student achievement levels, teacher retention, et cetera. And, and that's where this actually gets kind of exciting and where the fun work is, is in the, you know, the, the action planning of, okay, how do we make a difference? We've got all this information. We get all this research that tells us this is the thing we've got to get right. And what's really fun, Doug, is when we get it right, it's almost like magic. All kinds of other good things just start happening. And that's that's probably been the the, the greatest joy that I've found out of out of you know kind of my side hustle as a consultant and also in the in the work of leading my own schools is boy, when we get this right, you start seeing all kinds of really wonderful things start happening in the school well, and in the organization. I think it's interesting to, again, bring in David's work in, in his book, Trust Edge. There, there's one segment in that book, as I recall it, as, as he was trying to build the case for why leaders in the business world should be thinking about trust, he does cite the studies that have been done that says school-aged children perform better when they feel yeah. that they're in a trust environment. Right. So if the administration and the teachers have created that trust environment, the students perform better. So I think it's ironic here. We're doing kind of this full circle on the, on the idea that, um, and, and correct me if you saw David's book differently, but the way I read it, he was making the case for business guys to pay attention to this notion of trust. He pointed to the fact that most rudimentary kids in school do better when there's a trust environment that has been created. And I'll connect your word you used a moment ago, that discretionary effort or discretionary contribution of time and effort. That's a word in my book, too, that we talk about. We, we talk about the idea of 
how does a leader help create the desire to contribute discretionary effort from the work team? It's by building the trust in the environment so that they choose to contribute more. And everybody has that capacity in one way or another. Nobody operates at full speed, full high gear all the time. So you do have choices you make in how you commit mm-hmm. your time and intellect and resources. So yeah. as a leader, being able to tap into that is is so vitally important. Right. And, and really, you know, the teacher is the leader in the classroom. So it, it has direct application. And, and it's what's been interesting. You see all kinds of social media posts about it, and it's been true for years. And uh, you'll hear a lot of people quote the research around what's the number one factor that impacts student success. And they'll say the teacher, which is true, but you got to drill down. Specifically, it's about the teacher is just what you said. It's a high level of trust. That's the factor that makes all the difference in student engagement. And when we look at, well, what is it that drives high level of student achievement? It's internal motivation. What drives high levels of internal motivation of a student and engagement in the classroom? Trusted relationship with a teacher. It's, yeah. And, and then you've got to back it up even further. Well, what then drives high levels of motivation and engagement of teachers? Because that's what you've got to have. <laughs> it's all about trusted leadership. So are they well-supported? Do they have a trusting relationship? So again, there's this direct line that goes back to school leadership if that's not in place. Another stat, Doug, that they talk about a lot with school leaders, and it's also true in the business sector. What percentage of school initiatives, improvement initiatives fail? And the answer is 70%. And that stat has held true for years. But take a look at uh, entrepreneur stats. What percentage of new businesses fail? 70%. What percentage of business initi- uh, new initiatives fail? 70 It's the same number over and over and over. And then you start digging, well, why? Why is this vast majority of improvement initiatives failing or launches failing? Well, then what the literature is showing us, it's all about um, um, basically execution. And then you dig in a little bit deeper. Okay. What is it about the execution? It's leadership. It all, you know, Maxwell, it all rises and it's true. So when I look at schools, that 30% that know they're, they're rolling out these improvement initiatives and they're succeeding and they're, and they're moving. Well, it doesn't take long to figure out the reason they're working is because they've already built high levels of trust between the administration and the faculty. The admin owns the change. They're driving it. You know, we could talk about change management strategies, right? It's all infused together. And so what schools often miss is they're so anxious to fix, uh, you know, some learning deficiency or they're they're trying to fix, uh, you know, whatever the latest strategy is in instruction or assessment. If they don't take time to first make sure there's high levels of trust between leadership and the faculty, it doesn't matter what the initiative is. It's not yeah. going to last. Yeah. And yeah. and this is the common complaint you hear from teachers all the time is, oh, we're always trying something new. We're always doing something new. Yeah, you are. And it's failing because you're not taking time to fix the core element here. And that is you've got a positive working environment in which teachers feel well supported, trusted um, by their fact, by their administrators and vice versa. Yeah. Do that work. And then almost any initiative you want to dive into it's going to succeed. 
I like it, Toby. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm watching the clock here, and as I feared, this time is burning away so fast <laughs> as we get into this, and I, I think it's a great discussion. We're going to have to take a commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a lot more about this notion of the elements of leadership that can be adapted and adopted to help achieve these things. So hang with us. We'll be right back. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. DougThorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. Hello again, everyone. We're back. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and I'm visiting with Dr. Toby Travis. Uh, Dr. Travis is a, uh, an ele- or, excuse me, an education administrator. I started to say elementary. No, you got it all going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, we've we've been talking about the applications of uh, you know values of leadership and and how you build that trust environment in in your team setting for your organization and uh, when we were in the green room teeing up for this show we were we touched on the idea i had thrown out there what i guess might be considered urban lore but it 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 has proven time and time again you you take the top of the pile of industrial CEOs and they move around. Um, Tom Cook came from I believe it was Pepsi to go to Apple, and um, um, Carol uh, boy I just drew a blank. She's the current chairman of UPS. Came over from Home Depot, and and so these folks move around. So it it quickly demonstrates the idea that. Their value is not in the technical expertise they've got for the product line or the or the function that's being performed, but theirs is a honed and developed skill for leading and executing on work. So, uh, Toby, you had some thoughts about that statement and and right, I, clean I, us I, up, I, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I I would agree, but with a, a kind of a qualified uh, agreement with that. And and we talked earlier. Yeah, we can we can pick a little bit of a, a fight maybe here, but not really. I, I think you're going to agree in the end as well. What you will also find with those leaders who are um, or transferring or attempting to transfer or and do often successfully transfer those leadership skills to a sector that they do not have previous experience in, it can be successful so long as they're willing and motivated to dive in to learn the business. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, you know, let me give you an example of something that happened a number of years ago. So we've been in a teacher and administrator shortage of education for years in the U.S. It's gotten a lot of press because the pandemic has just worsened it. Uh, but we've been graduating fewer and fewer um, uh, teachers and certainly school administrators for years. Our college programs are not cranking them out. In fact, what I do trainings of school administrators is, is kind of a little survey. I do a pop survey. I'll say, how many of you here in this room? you know your your plan in undergrad or graduate work was to be a, a school administrator Doug nobody raises their hand nobody planned to be here now we end up here because we all have you know passion for education but my my point is um th- 
a number of years ago, there was a, a movement to just, well, let's just go look for good managers and we'll get them in and we'll make them um, you know, high school and elementary principals. We'll make them heads of schools and superintendents. If they've got good quality management skills in corporate industry, that's transferable, right? It's the same skills. And what we found is the only ones who were successful were the ones who went back to school mm. and learned the nuts and bolts of our industry. Uh, and that really was kind of my own story. I mean, I, again, I'm a, I'm a kind of a second career school administrator. I literally went back to school to learn uh, the ins and outs of quality instruction, assessment, curriculum, learning environments, and what you, you, you can't lead without knowledge of the industry. It, are the leadership skills transferable? Absolutely. But you've got to know your stuff. You know, one of the things we know about trusted leaders is they are competent in their knowledge, right? Uh, they, 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 they have uh, an ability to articulate uh, whatever the language is of the industry they're leading. So yes, the leadership skills are transferable, but those leaders who are successful, they take time to learn their industry. And so in the education sector, right, can, can someone segue over to educational leadership from you know, you know, whatever corporate setting or nonprofit setting, sure. Um, but you've got to take time to also make sure you know what quality instruction looks like. You know uh, what authentic assessments look like because you're trying to lead teachers in doing that work. And if you can't speak their language and if you can't understand their issues, no, I'm sorry. You're not going to build trust. You're not. You're not going to be credible. That's a fair distinction, and I and you are correct in your prediction. I don't disagree with that. The thought that comes to my mind is there's um, a lot of anecdotal legend and story about some of the biggest leaders and innovators in the world right now are voracious readers. Yeah, so right. they are there. There's constant consumption of information to to distill and process and um you know word is that as, as elon musk got into the space program uh, the engineers who came to work there were amazed at how on on monday he would walk by your station and have a discussion and and be uh, obvious obviously naive and ill ill-informed about the task but by friday he, he could talk the business with yeah, right well, we found, you know, trusted leaders are leaders who have opinions. You know, they, 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 yeah, they've done their reading and they've, they have formulated convictions. One of the things that I talk about, I use this bridge analogy in the, in the book where I talk about the foundation of trust is all values and beliefs. You know, do we, what, do we know what we know about our industry and do we have beliefs and values that we not only articulate, but then we consistently make sure are aligned to everything that we're doing. This is how trust is built. So, um, so yes, again, the leadership skills transferable, but part of the work is being confident in whatever the industry is that you're leading. You know, it's interesting. Just in that one statement you made, there's so many things that cross my mind from my own experience working with business owners and corporate leaders. I'll, I'll talk about some of the corporate population first, those that have risen up the ranks and they're in the upper middle, I'll call them. They're, they're not C-suite yet, but they might even be designated on the short list to go there. So they're still kind of honing some of that 
executive presence and, and ability, often I'll ask them, especially if, if I'm told they've just moved into a new role and they've got a new team that's come together, or maybe they inherited an old team and they're working that, I'll ask them, what's your vision for your unit right now? And they'll kind of, often it'll be a blank stare. It's mm -hmm. like, well, I'm waiting for direction from above and I'm going, oh, wrong answer, <laughs> wrong answer. <laughs> and I challenge them on taking what they do know about where they are and I'll give them, you know, grace that there's probably a lot to still learn and absorb. But for what you do know about the unit, have you not yet painted your own vision picture right. of where you want it to go? And and yeah. that is incumbent on you. There, That is not an option. You have to do that work. Yeah. Well, this is also why I'm, I'm partly a bit of a data hound. I, I love data-informed um, planning and, and, and goal setting. You know, so we're always doing assessments on our trust. So how, how is our trust level doing and using the data and how does that get better? And what are the specific actions that we can engage in to, to move the needle as it were, and then reassess and readjust and uh, set a new goal. You know, big fan of smart goals, you know, that we're, we're being specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-based. And, you know, one of the things that get back to Horsager's work, uh, you know, Dave talks about the 90 day quick plan, you know, it was, it's his, and, and we've adapted that most of the, in my leadership teams and schools, we, we usually think semester-based. So it's like, okay, sure. what can we accomplish sure. in the next semester? And and that's not to say there isn't a plan, especially at the board level, to be thinking, you know, long-term strategic planning where you're creating, you know, multi-year plans. But to drive improvement, which is really what we're all after, is how do we keep getting better at whatever it is we're doing? Oh, yeah, the, the short action plans you know what can how can we move the needle in the next few months what's that going to look like and how are we going to know we did it really really important well on that note you you spoke my magic word in the first half of the show your word intentional that is a lot of my readers and listeners know that's one of my favorite words to encourage leaders you you must be intentional about what you're endeavoring to do and part of that is whether you call it a 90-day or a 100-day plan. I have a 100-day plan model that I work with my clients on to try to map out that level of intentionality to make every day matter some way, somehow. Some right. little incremental nudge toward the goal is, is what every day has to be about because time is the commodity we all share. Mm -hmm. And the way we use that is 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 the ultimate i mean people get hung up on budgets and dollars and capex and all of that um, but i would argue that even somebody that is more effective at spending their planning and spending their time is probably going to outpace the guy that's really good with a budget yeah exactly and, and usually it's it comes down to how they do their work uh you know for example one of the the practices or norms uh, that my teams have followed is we will not use email or text to solve a problem. Mm. Okay. And uh, you know, now you can make somebody aware of a problem, although we will often say, if you've got a complaint, if you're upset, 
you may not use email or text. We're going to get face-to-face or at least phone-to-phone. Um, and because what, what I've found over the years is by trying to solve an issue uh, or even to, to launch a grievance via email or text, uh, it's really not helping anybody or anything. And often will fuel just a waste of energy and emotion. But if we will commit ourselves to know we're, we're not going to get sucked into the social media trap or the texting trap, uh, no, to be able to solve a problem, to deal with an issue, we, we got to do this face-to-face and we're going to respect each other and, and dive in and have the hard conversations. But what I was just trying to illustrate there is it's usually the difference between success and the lack of success is having intentional positive culture. And that's through the norms of how we do life together. So again, yeah, how are we going to manage email? How are we going to manage our meetings? Um, Usually the beginning of the year, I'll ask my faculty, I'll I'll have them pull out a, a card or a little list and I'll say, okay, write down all the things you hate about staff meetings. Just tell me everything you hate about a staff meeting. And, and it's usually, you know, they run long, we get off to topic. So, okay, flip those statements and turn those into norms of what you would like to see us do. And out of that, we'll create four or five norms of what staff meetings will look like during that year. Thus, we will always um, start on time and end on time. We will always only talk about what's on the agenda. We will always speak in a in a positive and helpful uh, tone. You know, those types of, of norms, and it's all about creating culture. If you can create a p- place where people love to come to work, it's amazing how the work gets better. Yeah, that's very close to the teaching that comes out of Patrick Lencioni's work yes, on, right. on high-performing teams. He's, of course, the big advocate for creating a team charter and a team contract. And I've done some of that work at the team level, gone into an organization where uh, the team you know, wants to step up and go to another level. And that whole, and, and you can call it whatever word you want to, charter, contract, covenant, a lot of that's not worth getting hung up on the semantics, but it's the principle behind it. And that is having that discussion, as you pointed out, what are the norms? What are the things? And I, a quick story, I, I was working with one large team at a big global brand and about 14 members on this team. And the team leader was a pretty dynamic guy. And he said, he introduced me, he said, I've asked Doug here to help us facilitate. We're going to write a team charter and a team contract, and we're going to kind of revisit and reset the table for who we are and how we want to do our work. And so I was giving them some examples of what they could consider, and we were were just getting to your note card part. And uh, one of the guys sat back in his chair and folded his arms and said, we don't need to do that. We know each other. We know how everybody operates. And the lady sitting next to him, who was a peer, looked at him and said, Bill, we really don't. I'm sorry, I disagree with you. We, we don't know each other that well. And I think it would be valuable to us to do this exercise and lay these things out. And as we got into it about an hour later, it was real subtle, but I watched him lean over and I overheard him say, I apologize. You yeah. are spot on. <laughs> I'm learning so much. So, you know, there was already a level of trust. Go back to our word. You know, there was already a level of trust between the two of them. They were pretty bold at speaking their truth and and not not having either one particularly offended. 
but there's power in being able to lay those things out. Oh and, yeah. And it sounds on right. one hand, you know, it's, we're all adults. We're all well-educated. We're all experienced. Why, you know, why isn't this second nature? Well, it's yeah. not, it, it's yeah. just it's, not. It's not. And we really do need accountability with each other. You know, once we have those agreed norms or whatever in a contract or whatever verbiage we're going to use, then it is, mutually agreeing that, hey, we're going to hold each other accountable to this because we'll all blow it. You know, we'll, we'll all make mistakes and, and fall short from time to time. But, you know, culture comes through shared community. I mean, it's shared commitments. It's in shared values. That's why, again, you know, the, the beliefs and values are the foundation of trust. And if those are shared and consistently practiced, in fact, the, the research has shown that where trust breaks down the most is when a leader has articulated a belief or a value, but then has not consistently carried that out in their practice, protocols, or policies or procedures. Sorry for the alliteration, but uh, uh, this is where trust breaks down the most. Uh, you know, the what I call the substructure of trust is all about connecting and supporting everything that we do. Uh, to our beliefs and values. And this is where it really becomes authentic. And uh, and it's also where it most frequently falls apart. I worked with a company once who was making an earnest effort to try to revamp and, and modernize their culture. And one of the drivers was the recognition that in order to attract, retain, and and engage modern workforce, they had to change the culture they had because it was a legacy of heavy handed command and control and all those old, old school thinkings. And um, so they did all this work and everybody, it was a couple years in the making and everybody kind of drank the Kool-Aid and got on it. And as an example, one of the elements they wanted to be more nimble in the way they conducted their business. They had had a legacy of if a market opportunity opened up, they would exhaustively research it before they made a go, no go decision. And I mean, you could call it the hundred percent effort to get all the data, all the facts, all the issues. Well, guess what? 90% of the time, the opportunity was long gone by the oh, time they accumulated right. all that. They yeah. could have made a valid informed decision at a 70% mark of content. Mm -hmm. It was that extra 30% of effort that took so long, it was heavy lifting and hard to do. So they changed the culture. They said, we're doing away with that 100% mindset. We're going to go with 70. It's truly okay to do that. And they had a lot of tenured employees that said, I used to get in trouble for doing that. I mm -hmm. really don't know that yeah, I trust right. you yet, yeah. that this is a real deal. And managers had to work really hard at saying, it's real, it's real, it's real. Well, 364 days, it was real. You know what happened on the 365th day? The execution of the traditional annual forced ranking assessment of all employees. And you know what forced ranking means? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've got 10 people. Somebody's number one. Somebody's right. number 10. And 10's not good. <laughs> And everybody else is in between. Nobody gets to share a slot. And some of what ended up getting cited for why somebody was designated an eight, nine, or 10 versus a one, two, or three was you didn't do the 100% work. Mm. You know, the project you did, you only went 70. Mm. And they said, that's what you told us to do. Yeah, right. 
So 364 days of yeah. very heavy effort went totally out the window. Out the window. In one, effectively one day. I'm being a little yeah. literal, but. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. Exactly. You know, when, when the pieces of the bridge are not connected to the foundation, it's going to collapse. Yeah. I want to try to wrap up with, with one question that's kind of burning in my mind, Toby. Uh, sometimes when you get into a discussion and you want to talk about leadership, one of the first things someone who maybe has not tried to study it or, or op- begin a journey toward better leadership start with some definitions. They say, what is leadership? What does it involve and what is it about and everything? And what I tell people is you you are correct on that point. You could go to Amazon and there's hundreds of thousands of books about leadership and everybody that's written one, I'm guilty. I've written two or three of them myself, try to frame a definition that's workable What I encourage people to do is begin thinking about their own experience of working with an effective leader and make your own list of attributes that resonate with you and can easily align with your values, your motives, your beliefs, and begin building your own framework of leadership. And then you can go study. I mean, you know, people will come in with things like, okay, yeah, I need to communicate better. I need to learn how to delegate. I need to learn how to mentor. I need to learn how to coach. And all those things start bolting on. That's a long lead in to ask you, do you have such a definition of what a good uh, administrator leader in the education world looks like? Well, I'm a big fan, and I will suspect you probably are as well, Jim Collins and, you know, his classic good to great still holds true in in really every setting and you go through those he has what five levels of leadership and and of course there are there are markers at each, at each level but as you get to that top level his level five you know the the two primary indicators are passion about the mission and humility you know you look at those two elements so what makes the best leaders is they really believe in what they're doing there is a passion, there's a fire burning in them for uh, whatever the organization is about. But there's also matched with that, uh, that servant leader mindset you know, of, of, hey, it's not about me. It's about us and what we're doing together. How can I make you successful? Uh, one of the exercises that I will frequently do with, with boards and board training is I'll ask them to bring their org chart and we'll literally turn it upside down. You know, because frequently in the classic school org chart and in any business, usually, you know, you, you'll have, you know, at the top, you'll have the board of directors or the owners, and then you've got a, a CEO or a superintendent, and then you've got principals, and then underneath that, you've got teachers and, and coordinators. And, and literally, we need to change our paradigm and flip this, that no, the board should be our rock. They should be our, you know, our terra firma. And, and the, really, the role of the CEO or the superintendent is 
support. I'm, I'm support personnel to ensure that my principals are wildly successful. And their job is to make sure that their teachers are wildly successful. These are support roles. So yes, we're leaders, but we need to be focused, passionate about what we're doing here together, and then humbly realize it's all about making sure other people are successful. Because when we pour ourselves into their success, obviously, the, we become successful. So one last quick question, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Classic debate. I've known I've known of it for decades since I just, took my first business class in school. Are leaders born or bred? Yeah, both. Yeah, both. Is with a quick answer. There are some that yeah they are, and and when you say they're born, it really means the the environment in which they grew up in prepared and developed within them skill sets that were either modeled through a parent or a mentor or a grandparent. I mean, we, we usually always become the people we hang around, right? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's that, that, that kind of classic principle. So really when we say we're born, it's, we're really talking about environment that we grew up in. And, um, but I also have seen people who have grown up in maybe even toxic environments turn into really powerful leaders um, because they choose to do so and they and they choose to make uh, the adaptations to their behavior and their mindset and uh, so both would be my answer good and in in that one that last example you gave it 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 may well be motivated by a desire to do a 180 from where they came right and so they're seeking the greater good on whatever that 180 looks like so well toby thank you so much uh you you do have a book that we're gonna uh, reference in the show notes but if somebody's interested in reaching out or just researching more, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn. That's usually the the fastest and quickest way, just Dr. Toby Travis, and uh, we can connect on LinkedIn. Um, the, the book is Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement, available on Amazon. And uh, if you just Google my name, you're, you're going to find me. It will, Very we'll good. Yeah. Very good. Well, as I said, folks, we're going to have all that great information in the show notes here. So one last time, Toby, thank you so much. This has been really helpful and a good discussion. Uh, Doug, thank you for the opportunity and, and best to you and your work. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Folks, this is a place in the show. I want to remind you that if you're listening to this episode on your favorite streaming channel, that we are available on video over at YouTube, a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I also want to put a, put a plug in for my friends and colleagues at, at the uh, IBGR radio network. That's IBGR.network online, and that is a syndicated broadcast network that I have the privilege of being a part of. The show appears there on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. We are broadcast globally in 185 countries, so um, tell your friends that may be hungry for something like this. IBGR is a business-only network. There's biz talk all day long, every day, and a lot of great powerful information over there. So hop in and check that out. Speaking back uh, to YouTube, uh, I would encourage you to hop over there, subscribe to the channel and leave us a comment, leave me a note. I love getting feedback from everybody so that I'm uh, got new ideas for topics and ideas that we can get into. 
And if you are or know someone who would be a great guest on the show, let me know that too. I'm always open and, and uh, would welcome that. So thank you for listening in. We're going to sign off, say goodbye for now. Take care. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.